You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones, to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. It's a song that uh, a three-year-old can learn and enjoy. If you have kids, maybe it's the first song you taught your kids. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a song that a three-year-old can more readily and easily believe when they sing it. Uh, Unfortunately, even though the overwhelming testimony of the Bible is that Jesus indeed loves us, uh, I think we struggle to believe that in our everyday lives. I think we struggle to live in light of Jesus' love for us. And the reason is we're jaded, aren't we? We're cynical. We've seen too many love relationships come and go, and, and it's made us cynical about love. Even this week, we saw... Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow consciously uncouple, even though they love each other more than ever, they said. We can't quite compute what it means to love one another and go your separate ways. And so we've heard, I love you before, and then we've seen the other person fail to or be unwilling to deliver on those promised words of love. We know the the fickleness of our own love. We know that more often than not, we choose to love us, ourselves, rather than love other people. And so we ask ourselves, is there such a thing as unbreakable, eternal love, the kind of love that Jesus claims to have for us? And we ask ourselves, how do I know, like really, that Jesus loves me, that his love will last, that his love will never let me go? Over 20 years ago, I heard Dr. John Hanna, who's a seminary professor, speak about this passage in John 18. Uh, the arrest of Jesus. And I remember John Hanna uh, uh, saying something like this, you learn a lot about the love of someone in the crucible of inconvenience. And for some reason that phrase, the crucible of inconvenience, has stuck with me uh, for years. Meaning in those times when that person is undergoing severe trial, severe problems, severe personal inconvenience, when, when they have every right to be thinking just about themselves because their problems are so front and center, so current, in those moments, if a person chooses to put others first, then that's likely to be genuine love. And in the arrest of Jesus, which we're going to look at this afternoon, uh, you have the crucible of inconvenience. And we're going to look at Jesus' arrest. And as we do, I want, you to, I want you to have this question in the back of your mind. Is there enough evidence in this little scene that probably only lasts a few minutes, the arrest of Jesus, is there enough evidence there to be convinced that Jesus loves me? Uh, look at John 18 again, which Ron just read from. John 18. You know, throughout the, um, we've been looking at the Upper Room Discourse, which is, which is John 13 through 17, and uh, throughout that, we've seen that Jesus loves his disciples. John 13, 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
John 13, 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 14, 21, he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. John 15, 9, as the father has loved me, Jesus said, so I have loved you, abide in my love. John 17, 26, Jesus prays, Father, I have made you known to them so that the love that you have for me may be in them. So Jesus has loved his disciples with his words. He's taught them, he's comforted them, he's counseled them in John 13 to 16. He's loved them with his prayers. In John 17, which we looked at last week, he prayed for them, and now he's going to love them with his actions. And so he moves out into the night to meet, we know, to meet his own doom. And the interesting thing about it is, is that as he goes out, knowing that he's going to be arrested that night, he takes his disciples with them. Which, don't you think that's a little weird? Like, he knows that they are already fearful, they are already overwhelmed, they are already just totally distraught. And to see Jesus arrested, I mean, that could just crush him. But Jesus doesn't say like, hey, you guys just hang out here, I got something to take care of. He says, all right, let's go. And I think he takes them with him for a reason. I think he wants them to see something. I think he wants us to see something. And as we look at this little story... We've got to look beyond the bare historical facts of the arrest of Jesus and ask ourselves, is there something for us to learn theologically here? Is there something that Jesus wants his disciples to see? Is there something that he wants us to see? See, if if, if all we get out of this today is that Jesus got arrested and Peter did something stupid, uh, then, then we've missed the larger point of what's going on here. There are, um, There are two threads, I I think, that run through this uh, story. Uh, One is the thread of Jesus' sovereignty, meaning he's absolutely in control of all things. The other is the thread of his love. Uh, And these two, uh, they're kind of bound, they're they're wound together to form this long, strong strand. They're inseparable. His his, his sovereignty and his love are inseparable. And we need them uh, to be inseparable, don't we? Because if Jesus is only loving, but he's not sovereign, then his love does not have the power and the authority to shape our destiny, to shape our identity. But if Jesus is only sovereign, and you know, he's the king who controls all things, but he's not loving, then we could be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> we could be in a, you want the sovereign to love you. Because if you have the love of the sovereign, everything else, relatively speaking, is going to be okay. His sovereignty and his love, these threads hold together. And I want you to see in this story that Jesus always exercises his sovereignty out of his great love for his people. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1, John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he taught them and then he prayed for them. Uh, He went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So let me stop here for a moment. Uh, Jesus and his disciples walk east out of Jerusalem. If this is Jerusalem up here, they walk that way. And they walk down. They walk down into this valley, the valley, the Kidron Valley, and there's a, there's a brook or a ravine running through this valley that's usually dry, but in the rainy season, it has water in it. So it's dry at this time. They walk across the Kidron Valley in that ravine, and then they begin to walk up 
uh, the Mount of Olives, and there's a garden there on the other side uh, on the Mount of Olives, and we know that garden is, is the Garden of Gethsemane. That's, that's where they're headed. Now, there's a really interesting Old Testament parallel to what's happening here. Back in the book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 15, hundreds of years before what's happening right here with Jesus, uh, David was king in Jerusalem. And David had a son named Absalom, and Absalom was conspiring to take his throne, to take his father's throne away from David. And he was building alliances, Absalom was in Jerusalem. He was building support for his cause. Uh, And David had a trusted counselor named Ahitophel, a, a trusted advisor who actually went over to Absalom's side. He switched sides. He betrayed David and went over uh, with, to Absalom's side. And, and it got to the point that Absalom had so much support for his cause that David had to get out of Jerusalem. He had to flee for his life. And in 2 Samuel 15, David is fleeing Jerusalem uh, for his life. And listen to this. 2 Samuel 15, 23. All the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, that is all the people that were leaving Jerusalem with David. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And then verse 30, but David, King David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Isn't that amazing? That hundreds of years before Jesus, King David took the very same walk of betrayal that Jesus, his descendant, would one day take. Don't you think Jesus in his sovereignty was well aware of that parallel? Don't you think that Jesus in his sovereignty chose that route and that destination on purpose? He's in, He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. He chose the garden on purpose because he knew Judas would find him there because they hung out there all the time. He's not hiding. He's making it easy for those who would arrest him. He's he's in control. Verse 3, back in John 18. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers... And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So representatively, the whole world comes out against Jesus. There's Gentiles, the Roman soldiers. There's Jews that are there, Pharisees, religious leaders, officers of the temple. Uh, And there's even a disciple of Jesus, right? Judas is there. The whole world comes out against him. And Judas leads all these soldiers out to arrest Jesus. Some translations say it's a cohort of men, which would be 600 men. Uh, It's probably about a third of that. There's probably 200 men uh, that came out uh, with this band of soldiers. Uh, Bottom line is a bunch of guys. And these are trained, equipped soldiers. These are like the Marines. These are not weekend warriors. These are professional, full-time soldiers coming out to arrest him. And they bring torches and lanterns because they think it's going to be hard to find this guy. And they bring lots of weapons and lots of men. Because when you go out to arrest a very popular man who might be causing an insurrection you're expecting a crowd. You're expecting maybe a riot, maybe an uprising, and they're going to squash that thing. And so they're ready for it. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, it's a statement of his sovereignty, of his omniscience. He knew everything that was about to come his way. He came forward 
And he said to them, whom do you seek? He initiates his own arrest. He's like, let me make it really easy. I'm going to ask you an obvious question. Who y'all looking for? Steps forward. And they said, verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Literally, he said, I am, because the he is not there uh, in the original language. I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So Judas, you know, where he, he's showing what team he's on. He's standing with them, not with Jesus. Now, when Jesus asked them who they're looking for, it's really interesting. They answer with the name of a man, a human name, Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus was, responds with the name of God, I am. Remember back in Exodus chapter 3, the second book of the Bible? God said to Moses, I'm going to send you to Israel to free my people out of slavery. And Moses says, wait a minute, when I go to your people and say, God has sent me, they're going to say, what's his name? What's the name of God? In Exodus 3.14, God says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you to them. It's the name of God. Yet we don't refer to ourselves like that, do we? we? We don't use the verbs to be about ourselves without any kind of modifier or qualifier or object. I say, I am Todd Stuman, or I am hungry, or I'm standing here on this step. There's always a qualifier or a limitation to who I am. It's not true with God. God is the only one that can say, I am, period. And when Jesus says, I am here, he's taking the name of God on his lips and he's assigning it to himself. And he's saying, I'm the absolute one. I'm the eternal one, the the one who is always and will always exist. I am the sovereign God. That is what Jesus is saying here. How do we know? Look what happens in verse 6. This is how we know. The very next verse. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is not just like a moment of clumsiness where they're like, whoa, you know. It's not like Keystone Cops where they're like running into the guy in front of them and dominoes and like, you know, it's not like that kind of moment. They drew back. They fell to the ground. They're on the ground. I don't know much about military strategy, but I don't think that's a position of strength, right? I don't think that's a position of of victory. When you lose your footing, uh, you've lost in military conflict. I don't know, can you imagine one of these Roman soldiers writing a letter to his girlfriend the next day? Yeah, we went out to uh, arrest this guy last night, kind of a quiet guy, more of a rabbi than a rebel, and we went out to arrest him, and then at one point we just all fell down. It was so embarrassing. LOL. Jesus gives them a glimpse of his deity, and it knocks them off their feet. And what Jesus is saying to, him, to them there is, hey, I'm just, I just want you to know that, that I'm calling the shots here. I'm just letting you guys know that. And what I think we need to see from these first six verses is that Jesus is sovereign. He's controlling the whole situation. Every little detail from his route to the place that we picked to how he deals with the soldiers, he is sovereign. Here's the catch, though. He exercises his sovereignty not to protect himself, not to squash his enemies, 
He exercises his sovereignty to give himself up. The world came out against Jesus, and Jesus delivered himself up for the life of the world. It's an act of love. It's sovereign self-sacrifice. Jesus loves me, this I know. I see it right here. But the scene progresses, and the disciples are going to learn more about Jesus' love, and we are too. The focus of his love is going to begin to narrow. He loves the world, and he's showing that here, but it's going to narrow a little more here. Uh, In verse uh, 7, look at verse 7. Apparently, the, uh, the soldiers got back up. They got knocked down, but they got up again. Some of you don't know me, but I, I tend to think, I tend to think, I, I assign songs to everything. And for some reason, for years, I've not been able to read this without thinking of that song. I get knocked down, but I get up again. All right, it's a terrible song because it's from the 90s. Uh, all right, it has nothing to do with the sermon. But I just wanted you to know that I think of that. They're back up. They, they're brushing themselves off. They're straightening their swords or whatever and uh, their armor. And, and Jesus has their attention now. And look what happens in verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Let these men go. He's definitely calling the shots, or at least he thinks he is. Like, when does the prisoner ever get to tell the police who they can arrest? Let these men go. I want you to notice where Jesus begins to focus all his attention and all his care. In this moment, when he has every right to just be thinking about himself. In this moment, when he has every right to be thinking about the horror that is coming his way later on that night. In this moment, when he has every moment just to be thinking about his own fear and drowning in his own fear, he's not. All his power, all his control, all his sovereignty is set on protecting his men, the ones he loves. Let these men go. Another way you might interpret that phrase, let these men go, is forgive these men. It's the same word. It's the, it's the same word that we, that we use in the Lord's Prayer when we say, uh, forgive us our debts as we, have, we, as we have forgiven our debtors. What we're saying to God is, God, don't hold on to my debts. Let go of my debts. Let them go. Forgive me of them. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Forgive them. Take me. Right? Me for them is what he's saying. Substitution. He's exercising his sovereignty to substitute himself for the ones that he loves. Me for them. I was uh, listening to another sermon about this passage this week, and the pastor reminded me of this powerful scene at this, of this movie, uh, The Last of the Mohicans. Apparently this is 90s day, because I just referenced a 90s song, and now there's, here's a 90s movie. Great movie, though. It's a, and if you haven't seen it, Daniel Day-Lewis, who seems incapable of making a bad movie. Uh, and uh, it's one of my favorite movies, um, in this scene towards the end of the movie, Daniel Day-Lewis, who plays this character named Hawkeye, so there's Hawkeye, uh, his character, there's another guy named Duncan, who's the English-British officer, and Hawkeye and Duncan both love the same woman. They both love the beautiful Cora, but Cora loves Hawkeye. She does not love Duncan. She has not ch- she's chosen Hawkeye, 
And toward the end of the movie, there's this scene where the three of them have been captured by the Huron Indians, and they're on trial uh, before, the Huron, before the chief of the Huron Indians, and the, and the chief is about to render a verdict against those three. And he's speaking the Huron language, but he's also speaking in French. And everybody understands French except for Hawkeye. He doesn't know French. And so Duncan is translating in French uh, for Hawkeye. And the Huron chief finally renders the verdict. And he says, Korah, the woman, must die in the fire for the sins of her father. And Hawkeye and Duncan, you may go free. And the warriors grab Korah, and they start to take her towards the fire. And all of a sudden, Hawkeye realizes what's going on, even though he didn't know the language. And he's like, wait a minute, no, 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 take me, not her, me for her. And and, and the chief doesn't understand him. And so he says to Duncan, tell him in French, tell him to take me, not her. And Duncan turns and says something in French uh, to the chief. And Hawkeye's like, did you tell him? Did you tell him to take me? And Duncan looks at him and says, yes. And the chief begins to deliberate, and he thinks a moment, and then he nods, and he says something to the warriors. And in this surprise moment of substitution, they take Korah, and they hand her to Hawkeye, and then they grab Duncan and begin to lead Duncan towards the fire, because Duncan has given himself up for her. He has said in French, take me, a British officer, for her. And Duncan, out of his love for this one who did not love him, died a substitutionary death. If you've seen the movie, he dies in the fire, strapped to a pole with his arms out like this. Substitutionary atonement. Me for her. That's love. That's what love looks like. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He, he, he is saying, with all that I've got to these, to these 200 trained soldiers, take me, don't take them. Let these men go. Why does he do this? Verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. When did he speak those words? In the previous chapter, when he was praying for him in chapter 17. He said this, John 17, 12. Father, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that is Judas. So he says, I've guarded them, I've protected them. And that's what he's doing here in the garden. He's protecting them. He's guarding them. You could say that Jesus is ensuring the future of the church by what he's doing here because he knows that if these men are arrested, we'll never hear from them again. They'll probably be executed. They'll be left to rot in prison. And at the very least, their faith in Jesus, their fragile faith in Jesus will be shot. And he's ensuring uh, the future of the church. Jesus exercises his sovereignty to protect and to preserve his disciples. It's an act of love. And he's still doing it all the time protecting and preserving his disciples. He's doing it for you and for me. Because what can snatch you away from Jesus? What can, what can take you out of his hand, out of the love of Jesus? And the, the answer is nothing. Romans 8. Listen to these verses, these famous verses from Romans 8. I'm going to read them in the New Living Translation, uh, which is probably not one you read often, but I really like how this is worded. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we're persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. 
And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so let me ask you, where do you feel in your life right now? Where do you feel vulnerable? Like, where do you feel unprotected? What is it in your life that, might, that, has the, that has the potential to cause you to question whether or not God loves you, whether or not Jesus loves you? It might be your circumstances that are beyond your control. It might be people in your life, relationships in your life. Maybe it's your own sin. It's like, how, how, Jesus can't really love me after that. I want you to rest in this truth, even this week. Jesus will never let you go. He'll never let you go. Like, if he's gone far enough to say, me for her, me for him, won't he go the rest of the way to see you through whatever it is you're facing? Won't he preserve you? Protect you? He exercises his sovereignty to protect, protect and to preserve his disciples because he loves you. Jesus loves me. This I know. I see it right here. I want to say one more thing about his sovereign love that we see in this scene, and we'll end with this. Uh, Jesus has given himself to the world broadly. More narrowly, he's, he's exercised his sovereignty to pr- protect and preserve his disciples. But his love is going to get even a more narrow sort of laser focus at the end of this scene, and he's going to focus on one guy. Watch this. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Peter arrives on the scene just in time. (laughs) Never fear, Jesus. I got this. As soon as I cut off this guy's ear, we're good to go, right? That's that's all that needs to happen here. Peter, uh, after all he had just witnessed, he'd just seen Jesus control the situation. He'd just seen Jesus put 200 soldiers on their back with with a couple of words. Uh, For some reason, he still feels like Jesus needs his help, right? And I think Peter's intentions are really good, but he's just not much of a swordsman, right? So he goes in there flailing wildly, and he's cutting off ears. I think, this, I think this moment really captures uh, for us the fruitlessness of trying to take the reins from Jesus, uh, the fruitlessness of trying to assume some of his control, like some of his sovereignty. See, I think it's easy for us to do. We start to look at Jesus' work in our lives, and we're like, yeah, Jesus, pretty good try, but if you look at my life, things are not that great, and so we start to take control. And we wade in to situations that we were never meant to control. So, for example, someone might hurt us or wrong us or even criticize us, and we fight back. And even worse, we might seek vengeance on that person, all the while knowing that, God, that, that vengeance belongs to God alone. It's not ours. It belongs to Him. But we, we try to assume some of His role. Or we get tired of waiting in our life for something that we desire like a spouse, 
like a better job, like a better house. And so we take control and we rush in to what might be ill-advised situations, or we rush in to what might be ill-advised relationships, assuming some of the sovereignty and control that only belongs to God. And what Jesus is saying to Peter here is, listen, Peter, I don't need you to step in and do my job for me. I need you to trust me. Like in Matthew's account of this, Jesus says to Peter, don't you know that I could, if I need some help, I could call the Father right now and he'll send 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels, Jack, (laughs) to come and help me if I need it. In Luke's account of the story, Jesus, Jesus reaches down in the dirt and picks up the guy's ear and just sticks it back on his head. In one way, as evidence to say to Peter, hey, Peter, this is not how we roll. This is not, we're not cutting off guys' ears. I'm going to stick it back on. But I think even more to say, oh, yeah, did you not think I was in control here, Peter? Watch this. Heals the guy. Jesus is the sovereign one. And he needs us to trust him, not try to take his job from him. But I think this moment also captures the, uh, the patient love of Jesus. Peter has been in training for Jesus, with Jesus for like three years, and he's been preparing for this moment. Like for three years, he's heard Jesus say things like, I didn't come to rule, but I came to die. I didn't come to pick up the sword, I came to lay down my life. And I'm going to have to suffer and die so that I can be raised again on the third day. That's my mission. So Peter knew this stuff, right? Peter had passed the midterm exams. He passed all his quizzes. He knew the material. But then the moment of truth comes, and he forgets all his training, and he just goes in, and he starts hacking at stuff. And I'm really strangely encouraged by that, because <laughs> I'm a lot like that. But you know the most encouraging thing about it is, is the love of Jesus, Jesus does not blast Peter here. He doesn't just make Peter feel terrible. Instead, he's like, all right, Peter, let's review the gospel again. Right? There's a cup. There's a cup that I must drink. Remember, we've gone over this before. This cup deals with my death. We've talked about it. Let's, you know, and he just, he tells him the gospel again. Jesus corrects Peter so gently, so patiently. Isn't that that awesome? Like he never stops discipling his men, even in this most stressful of moments. That's such amazing love. Then in in the moment of highest inconvenience, Jesus takes a moment to instruct, to correct, to guide Peter. Jesus is so committed to our sanctification. He is so committed to our growth. He is always discipling us even in the most trying times, and I think maybe most especially in the most trying times in our life. So if you, if you feel stressed, I've had some moments of stress this week. If you feel stressed, or if you're going through a difficult season in your life, you ought to ask yourself this question. How is Jesus with me in the midst of this? And then what, what is Jesus trying to teach me, work in me, shape me in, mold me in through this, and maybe even in spite of this? Because he is. He's always teaching us, always discipling us, always cleaning up our messes, always you know, sticking ears back on heads. He's always preaching the gospel to us and reminding us of his grace. He's committed to us to sanctify us and to grow us because he loves us. 
He exercises his sovereignty to do that. I think the sovereignty and the love of Jesus, they, they hold together in this text. They're inseparable. And, and mo- and verse 11 is actually the place where it's most obvious when he talks about, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus has been orchestrating this whole arrest scene so that he might drink this cup. And the cup in the Old Testament was a cup of wrath. The image is the cup of, it's a cup of judgment. It's a cup of suffering that was to come upon the wicked, the evildoers. Leslie Newbigin says this, he says, the psalm, as the psalmist and the prophets had said many times, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. But in the strange mercy of God, the cup of God's righteous wrath against the sin of the world is given into the hands not of his enemies, but into the hands of his beloved son, and his son will drink it down to the dregs. Jesus sovereignly orchestrated his own arrest so that he might drink the cup that you and I were meant to drink. So the judgment that you and I uh, against sin that we deserved would fall on him, but would be poured out of that cup onto him. Jesus loves me. This I know. we We see it right here, don't we? This story ends in verse 12 like this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. They tied him up in knots. And thus begins the passion of our Lord, the suffering of our Lord. But make no mistake of who's in control of everything that's about to happen to him. He's already made clear who's in control. He is the sovereign one who loves us. Let's thank him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.